back to John chapter 3, verse 16. And for those who are just joining us during the series, we've been exploring the book of John verse by verse, and we've been uh, we've hunkered down here on John 3.16 for, for quite some time now. So this is part four of our message on John 3.16. And I really want to, to emphasize this and belabor this point here in John in order to successfully or at least intend to successfully uh, present what John argues the rest of the way in his gospel, which is God's sovereignty and some difficult, some difficult doctrines that we may not feel comfortable with. So it's the main basis of our study here where, where we've come to this particular moment in, in the gospel of John where some questions have to be answered. And, and John 3.16 really summarizes for us God's heart in action. So what we've learned or what we've been learning is God is love and all that he does stems from that goodness. The salvation of his people therefore flows from his love for them, not based on merit. This isn't anything good that we have. But foundational to our salvation is God's grace towards us, his graceful, loving kindness he has for his people. That's why John chapter 1 verse 16 says that we have received grace upon grace. It's a theme that repeats itself throughout this entire gospel. And that's one of the things that God's people must remember. We have received God's salvation by grace. The, the difficulty in John chapter 3.16 does not lie with the identification of God's love, but the object of his love. That's where the, the issue lies, and we'll get to that in a bit. Here the object of God's love is the world. That's what he loves. How does God love the world? Well, he does this by giving his unique sons, hence the emphasis on his love. He gives his unique son. Giving here speaks on giving up to death. Notably, God is the one doing the loving. The primary agent of our salvation is God. He planned this all out. God didn't send his son into the world to love the world per se, though the son does love the world. Instead, he sent his son because he loved the world. That's why the Son was sent. For John, what Jesus was saying is clear. And then he accentuates this concept in his first epistle. So before we go to his first epistle, I want to recall what the verse says in John 3.16. The famous verse, but it's very helpful for us to, to repeat it and know it once more. John 3.16 says... For God, or in this way God, loved the world. And that's what we've been saying this entire time. What's the way he did it? He gave his son. And what does that point to? Points back to John 3.15. By the lifting up of his son. This is death on a cross. That's the way God loves the world. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
And so then John repeats this in his first gospel, in his, in his first epistle, I mean, in John chapter, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This is what he reiterates or he accentuates in, in emphatic fashion. God's love was revealed among us in this way. That's verse 9. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. John chapter 4 verse 10. Love consists in this, that we loved, that not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is God's actions on display through his son as the atoning sacrifice. That Once more, John 3.16 reiterates this and says, in this way, by the lifting up of his son on the cross. So we know that the primary agent, and in first or before or prior to any of us loving God, it was God who loved us. The passages mentioned, along with John 3.16, they're innocuous. The God of the universe loves us. How can anyone take offense to that? But as we will see, that's not the problem. What about this world that he so loved? That's where the problems begin to occur. Here's where God's love becomes dubious for some because the second half of the verse describes the purpose of God's love. So that all who do believe in his son won't perish forever, but receive eternal life. The term world, then, is a rather broad scope. It's talking about the world in general, all of humanity. Why, then, are there two groups of people? The saved and those that perish. In many circles, God's love is placed under scrutiny here. Does God love everyone? Yes, but what if he doesn't? If God does love everyone, then why does he not save everyone? Or if he does love everyone, then why isn't, is everyone then saved? This is difficulty. This is difficult to understand. And it brings into question also the work of Christ. Did he fail to accomplish his mission? Is God frustrated at his failed plan to save the world? These questions raise other questions on predestination, election, sovereignty, and free will. But John does not answer them in this verse. He will answer them as the gospel unfolds. We will get to these issues as we go through the gospel. For now, we must be careful not to derail from the critical theme of this verse, which is God's love for the world. God is love regardless, but chooses to have for himself an object of love. Here's a question. Why does God love the world, or does the world deserve God's love? The answer to this question glorifies God rather than us. This is when theology that is done from the ground up 
fails, theology from below, where it starts with humanity first and not with God. We are used to feeling the importance of ourselves because we read this verse and say God loves us and so therefore we are important or we are valuable to God because God loves us. But the truth is, That God loves a sinful, frail, poor, needy, and God-hating people like you and like me. So friends, when we encounter this verse, it's helpful for us to read the entirety of the verse. We don't just stop at, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We must finalize the verse by saying, by reading that whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. There is a qualification here in salvation. And those there, and, and the, the verse divides two distinct groups. There are those that will believe, and there are those that won't. Calvin says on his commentary in this verse, the 16th, the 16th century reformer, He says, and I quote, This verse distinctly teaches both truths. Faith in Christ means life to all men, and Christ had this life because God loved mankind and would not let it perish. The sequence must be carefully noted. When it is a question of source of of our salvation, we must consider the inborn and wicked ambition of our nature, which traps us into the devilish fancy that we deserve to be saved. Therefore, we imagine that God is good to us because he judges us worthy of his favor. But scripture praises everywhere his pure and unmixed mercy, which does away with all merit. End quote. In summary, what we see here is that this verse flies in the face of meritorious or works-based salvation. Nothing we could have done, nothing we've done, nothing in us merited God's grace towards us. There's no reason for God to love us. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we know how we act and what we think and what we do. And so we realize that God also knows all those distinct inner secrets in our souls and in the depths of our personhood. And even so, God loves us. So now we have this distinction within this verse. We have love and wrath or love and justice juxtaposed together here in one singular verse. We can't outweigh one aspect of the verse and pin it against the other aspect. It's beautifully mixed and it's beautifully combined with the love of God and His righteousness. We must remember that God's love is joined to all of His attributes. For instance, they do not run parallel to each other never touching. It's not like we can say love and his wrath or justice are, 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 are continuously next to each other without them ever intermingling. That's false, or that's a false way of looking at God's attributes because they are beautifully interwoven because they stem from the same source. 
which is God, and God is love. So we'll, we'll, we'll begin to uh, speak on this in a bit, and in our midweek Bible study in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to be discussing about God's attributes, and we're going to have a long session on the attributes of God uh, for the next month, possibly. So it's going to be a very interesting study. But what I do want you to understand is that we can't pin one attribute of God against the other. When it comes to God's attributes, we can't say it for ourselves, I like his holiness most, or I like his sovereignty most, or I like his love most. I think I'm going to love that part of God more than the rest because the rest are a little bit just kind of too theological for me, so I don't really care about those. We can't do that because God is not divided within himself. He, that There's another attribute that's called the simplicity of God. It, he is one, and all of his attributes stem from who he is. And once again, we've been learning this throughout this entire period in John 3.16, that God is love. So, let's look at a few of his attributes that stem from his love. And once again, this is an introduction and preparation to what God loves. Remember, at the beginning of this conversation or beginning of this preaching, we, we, we come to this difficulty of, of seeing what God loves or identifying the, the object of God's love. And in this case, it's the world. And we'll understand the difficulty of that concept as we keep moving forward in our talk. So some of the attributes that we'll look at, we're not going to look at all of them. We're going to do a study for that. But some of them are worthy of note within this context. In first place, God is holy. You've heard us repeat this time and time again. God's love is not some romantic, mushy, emotional love that some have tried to frame. Instead, it is a holy love, and it changes us to become holy as we are meant to be. Without holiness, we will not see the kingdom of God. In his commentary on John, a fellow pastor Richard Phillips writes, and I quote, When I am counseling couples before their marriage, I often hear one of them, usually the bride, say, I never want to change him. I always pause, lean forward, look her in the eye and say, You will. You will. God's love never says, I don't want to change you. End quote. This has to be understood. The quality of God's holy love changes us from unholy people into a holy people. So the, the, the model that many churches have adopted as of the, the early or the late 90s, early 2000s, has been this model that circulates around that says, come as you are. Everyone is welcome. And sometimes it just sounds too superficial to say that. We, we have big uh, uh, banners outside of the churches and they say, everyone welcome, everyone is welcome. And it sounds nice and they're great to have. And I'm not saying no one is welcome, but it, it becomes very superficial, especially when people are confronted with their sin. What will you do then? 
after being confronted by sin. Rather, the motto should say or, 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 or read something like this. Come as the sinner you are and be set free from the bondage of sin, of your sin, that has you on a trajectory to hell and be renewed in your mind. God's, God loves you too much not to change you. That is what we call holy love. That is how God is love. If God is love and God is holy, he loves with a holy love that ultimately affects the person it loves. In this case, God loves the world and it will affect the world. We'll get to that in a bit. Another one of his attributes is God's, God is unchangeable. This is, this is a very important attribute of God because God is not like us in that we change our minds on a daily basis. God does not change and therefore the way he loves is unchanging. God's love for us never changes. It is consistent in every aspect. The wonderful Puritan writer John Owen writes, Though we change every day, yet his love does not change. If anything in us or on our part could stop God loving us, then he would long ago have turned away from us. It is because his love is fixed and unchangeable that the Father shows us infinite patience and forbearance. If his love were not unchangeable, we would perish. End quote. So you see, friends, when God loves us and how he loves us will not change. Another attribute of God that you've heard consistently here, especially throughout the Gospel of John, is that God is sovereign. As Ephesians says, we have been predestined and adopted as sons in his love. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. That's the emphasis of Paul saying that the sovereignty of God in our salvation comes before the foundation of the world, but he does so in his love. The way God rules, the sovereignty of God is a loving God who rules the world. I love one of the pastors, James Montgomery Boyce, who's also a theologian, writes, and I quote, God's love is a sovereign love. His love is uninfluenced by anything in the creature. And if that is so, it is the same as saying that, that the cause of God's love lies only in himself. In scripture, no cause for God's love other than his electing will is ever given. End quote. God loves us prior, before we have done anything to deserve it. That's why, my friends, when we get to these big attributes, these big theological concepts of who God is, they become very valuable to recognize and exalt 
the greatness of God in this. When we read in John 3.16 that God loved the world, that, that sentence should, should bring us to tears, should make us consider the greatness of our God and the glory of our God. It, it, it gets us to realize, and some have eaten written on that basis. It, for, as a matter of fact, we, we have sang this time and time again, amazing grace, that, that wonderful saving grace that saves a wretch like us, a wretch like you and me. These, these attributes and especially that stem within the love of God make us worship the greatness of our God. This is your God. He is the one that sent his son, that gave his son for the world. Many writers or Theologians try to settle or ease the tension that we see here in this verse and in other parts of Scripture between God's love and His wrath. As mentioned earlier, there's two parts to this verse. And eventually in John 3, if you read with me further down in John chapter 3, go to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's why in John 3.16 it says, Whoever believes in him should not perish. And here that phrase perish or that word perish means an eternal perishing. That's when the wrath of God remains on a person for all of eternity. So the beautiful aspect of John 3.16 is that God loves. In the second half, it's God's wrath that remains. And although many have tried to ease that tension, we have to draw our conclusions based on Scripture. Others have made up incredible fancies on this and have wrote extensive amount of literature based on this division of God's love. And, and it just baffles the mind that if you just come to Scripture, you'll see them coexisting because they're all a part of God's attributes. Trust me, as we continue through John, theological difficulties will become even more evident. That is why we are spending so much time here to approach God scripturally as he himself has revealed himself to us. If we go back to the scripture we read earlier in our scripture reading, you'll understand this at a grander level. So turn with me to Ezekiel. That's why you may at times ask yourself, why do we read scripture in the beginning and then again and then again and then again? Well, it's consistently because it's it's hearing God's word over and over again. And at times, we, we, we place the, these scriptures with what we're going to be speaking on later on in the sermon. Not all the time, but at time, most of the times we do. And here in Ezekiel chapter 18, what we read is very important to this particular situation. Ezekiel chapter 18, if we start off in verse 21, once more it says, 
But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all the statues and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. So in that beginning, in those beginning verses, what we read is a wicked person turning or repenting from his wicked ways. Now verse 23 this is important. God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and, now, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Read verse 24. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. So you see in verse 23, God says he wishes no one should perish or die. But in verse 24, he reminds us that those who remain in their unrighteousness or in their wickedness will surely die. So, so there's no reason for us to separate God's desires with his nature. Because God loves, God even loves here as we can see, people that are wicked that have turned from their wicked ways. However, those who remain in their wicked ways will surely pay for their wickedness. Again, if we read the chapter, this not only doesn't make sense for a lot of modern readers, but even Israel themselves are confused about this. And in verses 25 through 30, they, they think God is unjust. You are not just. Read with me. Just the, the, the first verse, 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? And so God returns to them and points to them. Hey, don't blame me for your unrighteousness. Don't blame me for your wickedness. People... When, when they try to reconcile God's love and righteousness and wrath, they find it very difficult because they say, well, how can God love and at the same time God punish? And it just doesn't make sense. And of course, friends, this will never make sense to us because we're human beings. We do not think like God. We are not God. And so God has defined these things for us, and that's why Scripture is so important. Because we see these concepts time and time again in Scripture. You don't believe me? Look at Jeremiah. Go with me to Jeremiah, and we'll, we'll see this again, uh, the way Jeremiah paints it. In chapter 48, we see Jeremiah saying, roughly the same thing with, with a little bit more emphasis. If you look at, uh, look at Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 26. Make him drunk, he says, because he magnified himself against the Lord. 
so that Moab shall wallow in his vomit, and he too shall be held in derision. Now read verse 35. And I will bring to an end in Moab, declares the Lord, him who offers sacrifices in the high place and makes offerings to his God. Read verse 38. On the housetops of Moab and in the squares, there is nothing but lamentation. For I have broken Moab like a vessel for which no one cares, declares the Lord. Verse 42. Moab shall be destroyed and be no longer a people because he magnified himself against the Lord. So here in these brief verses, we have this emphatic notion of God punishing Moab, of God punishing and hating them for exalting themselves. However, at the same time, Jeremiah writes in chapter 48, the same chapter, verse 31, Therefore I wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab, for the men of Kirhares, I mourn. In verse 36, therefore my heart moans for Moab like a flute, and my heart moans like a flute for the men of Kirhareseth. Therefore, the riches they gained have perished. So in the beginning verses we read that God utterly destroys Moab, and in these latter verses, we read that God mourns for Moab. That God, in a sense, doesn't take pleasure in punishing the wicked. And if you think that Jesus is any different, you think wrong. Because we see the same concept in the Son of God, which most people like to pin against one another. Jesus is most, more different or, or more loving than God. And, and that's just false. If you look at Luke chapter 19 in the New Testament, we see this played out in Jesus when he comes to the wonderful city of Jerusalem. And look what he says about this wonderful city. In chapter 19, verse 41 and 42, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. So here we have the compassionate Jesus weeping or crying over Jerusalem, saying, would that you even, if you even had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus here weeps but he weeps because Jerusalem did not recognize their time of visitation. They did not know 
the Father, even though they claim to know the Scripture. Friends, this is who God is throughout all of Scripture. There is no difference from the Old and New Testament, and therefore this wonderful verse of John 3.16 that we've been studying for so long is so important. So let's define the term now. After a preview and an introduction to God's love and the object of God's love, let's define the term world or this object of love, of, of, of the world. world. It is helpful to define the term world and its usage in the Gospel of John to help us understand the object of God's love. More than any other New Testament book, John uses the word cosmos, which is the Greek word for world, 78 times. Why does he do this? Because it highlights its significance. Not the significance that the world has, but rather the quality of the world is highlighted in the significance of its mention. Nowhere in the Synoptic Gospels is God mentioned to love the world, only here in the Gospel of John. In the Synoptics, God's love for humanity is implicit. Here in the Gospel of John, it is explicit. It's the only time that it's mentioned. And so some divide the word uh, cosmos or the word world to have three distinct categories. Positive meaning, a neutral meaning, and a negative meaning. However, there are two primary aspects that, that we have been able to identify within this verse. One of them being its indiscriminate nature. All of humanity is meant when we hear or when we read the word world. Not merely the Jewish nation or the Jewish population as they themselves were accustomed to knowing. See, the Jews believe that God elected them and them only. Here, the word world signifies all humanity indiscriminately, not based on race or quality. It goes for everyone. The other aspect that we can identify in the word world, the way it's used in John, is its universal sinfulness. Here is the world that God loves. It's not based on race. It is not based on their merit. But it is based on God's sovereign grace for a fallen world. You see, the universal sinfulness has been depicted for us since chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, you will read this. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And if you want a little bit more uh, context on those verses, you could go back to our preaching of, uh, in chapter 1. But here, it is a rejection of God. It's a sinful world that is invaded by light because the world is filled with darkness. Darkness in John often depicts sinful, uh, a sinful world or a sin sinfulness in nature. 
the indiscriminate aspect or the, the broad aspect that we've, that we've uh, studied, we see in John chapter 1, verse 29. Once more, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here John the Baptist is emphasizing that God sent the Lamb of God into the world to take away the sins of every person, not only the Jews, not just the Jewish nation. So in summary, God, loves the, God loved the world despite what it was. Again, all people without distinction and not simply the elect or a special elect nation. So after defining the term world, we come to understand the aspects of it, and now we get to understand a deeper notion of its nature. What kind of a world did God love? God loves a rebellious world. God's purpose in sending his son has to do with the nature of this world. Why does he send his son? The answer is to take away its sin, as we read in John chapter 129, and become the savior of the world, as John chapter 4 verse 42 says. A world of fallen, sinful human beings that does not and cannot love God as we read in John chapter 3, verse 19. The mission of the one given, his son, rests on the eradication of sin. So this is what the world is. That's why we mentioned earlier that when we realize the gravity of that beautiful sentence, for God so loved the world, we get to understand the, 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 the impact because the world is a sinful, dark place. And that's what God loved. And so in order to send, so the mission to save this world has to do with the sending and giving of His Son to remove that dark, dark place and, and to bring in light. But we know that sin is very much real today. Jesus Christ in a sense, did not remove all the sin of the world. As Christians, many of us still struggle with sin. Was Jesus' mission then a failure? We now come back to look at what the sin in the Gospel of John truly means. So Jesus does not fail here. And we're going to study what, how, how John depicts sin so that we could understand this a little bit more. Sin in the Gospel of John, starting from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 18, we read it, it manifests itself in the profanation or the idolatry that we see in the temple in chapter 2, verse 13. We see it manifest itself in the wicked deeds of the people in John 3, verse 19. In John chapter 4, verse 16 and 18, we see it manifested through adultery. In chapter 5, verse 14, sin which brings illness. In chapter 5, verse 44, it's a self-complacency in the matters that please God. In chapter 6, verse 26, it's gross materialism. In chapter 6, 66, it's indecisiveness. Verse 71, it's betrayal. 
in chapter 7, it's hypocritical justice and murderous intent. In chapter 8, it's bondage in, and lying and murder. And in chapter 9, it's rejection of the light. In chapter 12, it's theft and, and, and corruption. And in chapter 18, it's religious hypocrisy and physical violence. These are all the sum of the elements that characterize the nature of the world. The reason Jesus come as the light, which is mentioned five times within verse 16 through 21, is because the world is covered in darkness. Later John writes in chapter 8, verse 31 through 47, that Satan is the root of all sin and all who reject Christ. You understand the reason John uses light and darkness? See, the world is wrapped in darkness, and only the light of the world can make that darkness disappear. Sin carries ominous consequences, friends. That's why we read in John chapter 3, verse 36, that the wrath of God remains over them, over those who do not believe. It must be taken away by the Lamb of God. So does Jesus fail in his mission to eradicate sin? No, because what Jesus does is remove from the followers, from the believers of Christ, the bondage sin had over them. See, it frees the person to love God rather than hate God and stay within the darkness. Jesus does not fail because as Christians, we no longer are governed by the prince of this world, as John chapter 8 mentions. We are no longer ruled by Satan. Many of us, when we've encountered sinful aspects of our lives, we are not happy about them. We come to Christ and ask for forgiveness. We are no longer ruled and governed, and the chains that sin had over us have been removed. Jesus Christ has broken every chain of sin over our lives. And so, friends, what we have to understand here is that the world that God loves was a world that hated him. Universal sinfulness manifests by the unwillingness to come to Jesus in these points. Hence the reason for those who perish. They are self-sufficient. They are lovers of themselves. The universal sinfulness presents a moral inability. Going along with the darkness theme, the world is also blind as represented in blind man from birth. In John chapter 9, verse 1, this represents the human condition, born in sin. But then the man is healed because Jesus comes to him. So this is the nature of the world. It's blind before Christ. It also cannot hear. It's deaf. In John chapter 8, we, 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 we come across the, the, the people that cannot hear. Jesus says that the reason for those who do not love him is because they do not understand him. Because they can't. And they can't bear to hear his word. That's John chapter 8 verse 43. 
They cannot hear because they're slaves to sin. And they're slaves to their own desire and lust. It's John chapter 8, verse 34 and 44. The universal sinfulness of humanity and its moral inability is also represented in the raising of Lazarus. You remember that wonderful story that we read in John chapter 11? We'll get there soon enough. But Lazarus responds to a call by Jesus. In John chapter 11, verse 43. You see, Lazarus didn't have to believe in Jesus first because Lazarus couldn't. He was dead. But Jesus calls him to life. So there is no, there is no need of faith to have as a precondition for salvation. Jesus operates as this miracle worker or by a way of signs. And even though he shows what he can do, many in the same chapter, verses 45 through 46, do not believe. Why? Because we mentioned they were blind and they cannot hear. If Jesus would have called out everyone from the grave, everyone would have came out. But he only called out Lazarus. What this shows is that the world, like Lazarus, is dead up until Christ calls and brings them to life. So friends, as we close today, the world that we, in which we've been saved from is completely opposite of God, and it hates God. However, God gave his son for that unbelieving world, for that world of sinfulness, so that it could draw many to him. And friends, I hope that's you today. And as we say this, and as we've repeated it, and as we preach it, God loved the world. God loved you in spite of you. You didn't deserve it. You don't need to make yourself better for him. You don't need to come to church to, to make him love you. God loves you the way you are. But he loves you with a holy love that will not keep you in your sinful ways. So come to Christ, friends. That's you today. Come to Christ. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, as we close the service, we... Encourage those who have heard this word to come running to Christ. Because only the light of the world can eradicate darkness. And only the king of the world can free us from the chains and bondage of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.